Welcome to the Inspiring Brains Podcast, hosted by Nick Thielen. Join Nick as he talks to comedians, artistic people, and of course, the music scene. Any scene you can think of pop culture related, that's Nick Thielen. And now, here's your host, Nick Thielen. Let the Inspiring Brains Podcast begin! Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Inspiring Brains Podcast. Happy to have you along, and hopefully you're staying happy, healthy, and safe. Um, thanks again for tuning in. I uh, really appreciate it, and I'm happy to share with you uh, today's guest is my friend uh, Lars Calio, a comedian out of Edmonton, and I originally met Lars about uh, three years ago or so at uh, the Druid um uh, it's an Irish bar in Edmonton, and he was running a comedy show there, and uh, um, ever since then, I've kind of followed him on social media and kept in touch with him, and uh, we were able to connect for the podcast and do this episode, and I would say that Lars is probably one of the most uh, traveled comedians, uh, well-traveled comedians that I know. Uh, he's traveled, like, basically all over the world. Uh Outside of two continents, uh, Africa and Antarctica, uh, he has been like everywhere else, and uh, that's one of his goals that we talked about on the podcast is to uh, to eventually get to all seven continents, and uh, I think he's well on his way of accomplishing that goal. Uh, we also had some great conversation uh, about some of the legends. That he's been able to work with, uh, in particularly Joan Rivers, but he's also worked with people like Bob Saget and Jeff Foxworthy. Um, but in our conversation about Joan Rivers, uh, I uh, he shared a really cool story that gave some insight into what it was like working with her, and uh, and we talked a little bit about the uh, documentary about Joan Rivers. If you haven't seen it, it's called A Piece of Work. Uh, and it's a biography about Joan Rivers. I highly recommend it, even if you're not a comedy fan. It's just a great, uh, great uh, biography just about somebody who's a very hard worker and her uh, rise to fame and then hard work and continual work to kind of uh, reinvent herself and keep uh, popping up again and again in uh, in. Uh, many different types of uh, work from comedy to TV and film uh, to uh, theater. So highly recommend that uh, documentary called A Piece of Work, uh, which is from 2010. And you can find that on YouTube or anything uh, and obviously on any streaming services. But had a great chat with Lars. Um we also talked about him performing at uh, a military base in uh, close to the North Pole, which is a very cool story, um, as well as what it's like uh, performing in a different country and the fact that you have to be aware of all the cultural differences and making sure you don't say anything that is uh, frowned upon there or that could land you in jail. So those are just some of the stories we touched on. And uh, very grateful to Lars for joining me and for all his advice and uh, for his great stories. 
and I wish him nothing but the best. Uh, and uh, if you want to follow Lars on his social media, uh, his uh, Twitter is extra Lars. That's the word extra E X T R A Lars L A R S, and uh, his website as well as extra Lars dot com. Um, so I know it's we talk a lot about uh, having we talked a little bit about having to promote ourselves on social media and the difficulties with that at the end of the podcast. And trust me, uh, it really goes a long way. In addition, if you do that, uh, in in Lars's case in particular, he mentioned that if you message him on social media, he is uh, giving away his uh, first comedy album and his uh, new comedy album, which is. Uh, just putting the finishing touches on that should be out uh, within the next few days. Um, so if you message him on social media, he will give you a free copy of those albums. So that's yet another reason to follow Extra Lars on Twitter or find him on Facebook or uh, visit his website and check out some of his comedy. But anyways, I'm very grateful to Lars for uh, sharing his stories with me and his time. Uh, hopefully we'll be able to touch base again soon and uh, and actually perform together when this is all uh, over. But until then, I'm going to share a uh, little bit of a clip from uh, his CBC comedy special. Um, and until then, please stay safe. Uh, consider liking the Inspiring Brains Facebook page on Facebook or like Nick Thielen Comedy on Facebook as well. Uh, if you search up N-I-E-K... T-H-E-L-E-N, you can find me uh, anywhere on on uh, social media, basically. So please stay safe, and I hope you enjoy this podcast, and I'll talk to you again very soon. Thanks for coming, everybody. <laughs> Welcome down. Beautiful audience. Good to see you. Thanks for coming. I get to travel all over doing this job. I went down to Houston, Texas. <laughs> After one of the shows, we were at a club. The bartender found out I was Canadian. This is what he said to me. He said, y'all from Canada? We had a Canadian guy here last week. He left his jacket. Would you take it back to him? (laughs) I was this close to explaining to Captain Geography that we have 30 million people in our country. Then I realized the jacket would fit. (laughs) I said, oh, that's Chad's. I play hockey with him. I know whose jacket that is. (laughs) <laughs> I did a show for a stagette recently It was a bachelorette party And the bride was right in the front row And I asked the bride to be how the guy proposed She said in a mall parking lot I said, wow, I can just imagine how that went Oh my god, it says positive <laughs> She was mad at me for the whole show <laughs> But she was in her second trimester so she I, I had something cool happen the last time Metallica was uh, last time Metallica was coming through town. I won backstage passes. It was amazing. I'm a big fan, so it was cool. After the show, the whole band comes back. I said, oh, my God, I have loved your music forever. I have all of your albums downloaded. <laughs> I asked them if they would sign a blank CD. But... <laughs> they were angry. Upset. I don't swear much in my act. I think one of the reasons I don't swear much, my mother took that out of me when I was a child. She washed my mouth out with soap. 
happened to me, I was watching a show called Romper Room. I don't know if you remember Romper Room, but the host of the show would hold up the mirror and she would look through it at the TV and she would say, Romper, Stomper, Hey Daddy Do, I see Billy and David and Jessica and Sally. I waited for two years to hear Lars not once. <laughs> Finally, I just snapped. I was like, I'm right here, you cross-eyed bitch! <laughs> you don't see all your friends at play. <laughs> And then my mother washed my mouth out with soap. And that's the only time I ever wished I was deaf. Because then she would have just washed my hands. I got to go to Las Vegas for a friend's tag party. That was a good time. Down to Vegas. On the flight, they seat me next to my friend Derek. And before takeoff, I look over. He has a white knuckle grip on the chair. I've known the guy forever. I had no idea he was terrified of flying. So I did what any good friend would do in this situation. I teased him. I said, hey man, does that wing look bent to you? <laughs> I started singing Buddy Holly tunes for him. <laughs> the captain comes on, the captain's like, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, this is your captain, Jeff Boyd, speaking. I said, that's the guy we're doing shooters with in the bar. <laughs> we get into the flight, Derek falls asleep. So I push the button and call the flight attendant over. Boom. She stopped by, she said, how can I help you? I said, you know the oxygen mask you use for pre-flight demonstration? Could I borrow that for a minute? She brings it to me, I wait for a bit of turbulence and I wake Derek up. Now, I think this is hilarious. <laughs> Until we go through customs and he tells them I have two pounds of hash in my ass. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Inspiring Brains podcast with Nick Thielen. Um, my guest today is Lars Callio. A little bit about Lars. He's been doing comedy for 17 years. And he's appeared at festivals like Just for Laughs in Montreal. He has an hour-long special that's appeared on the Comedy Network. And he's entertained the troupe. He's a two-time Canadian Comedy Award nominee. He's uh, been featured on CBC and The Debaters and Sirius XM Radio. He's also toured with people like uh, Miss Joan Rivers, uh, Jeff Foxworthy, Bob Saget, and Martin Short, just to name a few. And he's had six appearances at the Melbourne International Comedy Festival the Bridgetown Comedy Festival in Portland, the Boston Comedy Festival, and the World Series of Comedy in Las Vegas. And he's also appeared at the Halifax Comedy Festival and is the uh, founder of the Okanagan Comedy Festival in British Columbia. So it's safe to say he's become an overnight success in just 17 years of doing stand-up. How are you doing, Lars? <laughs> I'm well, man. I'm well. It's funny. It'd be funny if you just read my bio. And then said, well, that's our time. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, we've got lots of time <laughs> these days. <laughs> yeah, your, your, your episode is just reading my bio. <laughs> yeah, that would be uh, short, short and sweet, right? But <laughs> um, yeah. I know we're kind of living in, a, in a, like, a bit of a strange uh, situation right now with, with, with the uh, pandemic, I guess you can call it, that's going on. What, what's keeping you busy these days? I, you know what? I've got a bunch of little projects on the go. Um, I, um, I got a chance to entertain 
the military at the North Pole in December, so I want to make a YouTube mm-hmm. video. I recorded little clips along the way, so I'm pretty excited about that. Um, and, you know, it's uh, Canadian Forces Station Alert is what it's called, and it's the northernmost manned outpost on the planet Earth. So, um, you know, I, I was in uh, scheduled to be in Australia and Asia for almost four months. Yeah. And came home after 11 days when our prime minister said it was time to come back. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, so it's, uh, I got an album that I, a new album that I recorded in November and then that other project. But, um, you know, so today's the last day of my 14 day quarantine after coming back from overseas. Okay. So, um, just lots of, lots of editing, all the stuff I've been procrastinating and putting off. And, yeah. uh, and after quarantine's over, I'm going to go out and try and save the world. That's amazing. So what is the, what is the North Pole like? Is it, is it just like a base where these people are working or is there, is there any sort of uh, civilization built around them or is it just wherever they're working and that's it? So they put a military base at Alert, which is kind of the, the very last piece of land before the Arctic Ocean opens up. Um, and so they opened in 1950, and I believe it was mainly to spy on the Russians. It was, you know, right at the start of the Cold War, and it's, you know, closer to Russia than it is to Toronto. So yeah. um, Magnetic North Pole is about another 500 miles straight north of Alert, which is in the middle of the Arctic Ocean. Yeah. So it, the, the base is a military base or forces station. Mm-hmm. They have Environment Canada up there, and the civilians who are up there mainly keep the base running. So they'd be the cleaners and the cooks, and um, you know some of the some of the staff that run forklifts and stuff. Right. Um, so so but but between eighty and a hundred people live up there, and all of whom are working on the Canadian Forces Station. So military okay. base predominantly, but a few civilians right. kicking around. Yeah. Um... So to start off with, can, can you take me back to, I know you've been doing stand-up for 17 years now, can you take me back to the first time you, you tried stand-up and the first time you did it and what that was like for you? Yeah, so I, you know, my parents were musicians, so we toured with the band while I was growing up. Um, I, did, I didn't get to go to school till grade nine, and so we were just on tour with with a country band called Colombian Gold Rush that my parents that my parents played in, that it was their band. Mm-hmm. And I thought I was going to be a country musician. I thought I was going to be a musician, and I was terrible. I was, I'm a dreadful musician. And um, I graduated from Lacombe, Alberta, yeah. which is where I graduated with a country music guy named Gord Bamford. Gordy and I graduated together. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, so I really thought I was going to be a musician. And I was just so bad at it that eventually music told me that I would never be a musician. So finally, I, when I gave up on a music dream, I waited probably five or six years. And then I came home after working cruise ships. I was a casino dealer on a cruise ship for a year. Mm-hmm. And I came home, and then I was, uh, I was sitting at home thinking, you know, I've always wanted to try stand-up comedy. And I finally went down to Yuck Yucks, which is now the comic strip in West Edmonton Mall, and I signed up for their amateur night. And I think that, I think my... When I signed up, I got a spot about five or six weeks later. Yeah. And the, so I had about five weeks to prepare for this show. And I rehearsed in front of a mirror downstairs a thousand times. I rehearsed and rehearsed and rehearsed and wrote and rehearsed and wrote and rehearsed and, rehearsed and went up and did my set. I think I had about 80 friends in the audience my first time, uh, mm-hmm. which was May 20th, uh, 2003. And the set was okay. You know, I 
know, you look back on that first tape of yourself and it's pretty tough to watch. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. You know, the, the reaction was good because I had so many supportive friends. And, you recorded it um, at that time too? You yeah. Just, yeah. My, my then girlfriend's dad did. They had a video camera because in 2003, you know, there were limited options for recording if you didn't own a video camera. Mm-hmm. And um, it was okay. Um, you know, I thought it was your first time. You're like, oh, that was great. Mm-hmm. Um, and then for the next five years, a little over five years, I worked a day job. Mm-hmm. And eventually comedy became so busy that it, it became the job. But, um, you know, the first set was all right. I was, you know, I was certainly rehearsed to the point of looking rehearsed. And, um, I, you know, I was happy with it. I was, I've never been nervous because I was on stage so much with my parents' band growing up. So, you know, I was pretty comfortable on stage as mm-hmm. a result of all the stage time I had trying to be a musician. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it was, uh, you know, I'd give it a, uh, from a, from an actual writing and performance standpoint, I would give it a solid C plus. Okay, okay. <laughs> Looking back well, on it. And yeah, I mean, um, like you mentioned, when you're, you, you, you did some preparation into, like, before you started, so it wasn't just like, I know a couple people I've talked to, they, it was sort of like a dare from their friend or they got signed up by somebody else. And then they just, you know, there wasn't an over like too much, uh, I guess maybe, maybe not like thought is the wrong word, but they didn't spend as much time preparing. So I guess maybe that's just, you know, the sense that you have like jokes written out is already kind of a, especially when you're first starting out, you know, you don't really know what you're doing up there. And, uh, sometimes, and, uh, you know, like, so the fact that you had stuff written out and you'd practice it a whole bunch, I'm sure that helps, uh, you know, with the first time and maybe that helped with nerves a little bit. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, that, that story is a part of so many comedians, you know, most of us have thought about it from the time we were six years old when people ask, you know, why'd you get into comedy? You think about it your whole life. Everybody that I know who's ever done it has thought about it for years and years and years before they ever did it. Yeah. And you're right. What'll happen is somebody will be two drinks in and they'll be at some sort of talent contest or variety night or even a comedy open mic. And they'll, one of their friends will go, you should do comedy. And then that person goes, I should do comedy. Yeah. And then, you know, they get on stage and do their first set and then they're hooked. But, um, yeah, but mine, mine was a little bit more deliberate than that, but right. it's funny, you know, how all the people you talk to, it really is, it really is something that people think about yeah. for so long so- before they, Start doing. How long did you think about it before you started? Um, before you first tried? Well, I actually got into it because I, uh, when I was in university, I was taking a screenwriting course, and then my professor in our like advanced screenwriting course, the final project, I guess, was we could either do a continuation of a script we had written, or we could do ten minutes of stand-up comedy. And I honestly went back and forth between the idea of continuing this awful script I had, or or doing comedy, and uh, you know. The way I looked at it was kind of like I've always had these uh, these thoughts and these ideas in my mind of in, in particular for me um, living with a disability and things like that. You have some frustrations, especially growing up uh, with all these people looking at you differently or judging you and, and, and seeing things differently. So there's a couple stories I had already in my head that I was just trying to figure out how to articulate. And then I, yep. I I had written them down for this for this project and and then uh, I ended up handing it in and my professor gave me like some sort of like it was like ninety or ninety five percent and then he wrote he wrote a big long explanation saying I should you know try stand up and do this and whatever and I, and I figured you know I feel like 
this guy wrote down everybody's paper just to try to convince them to do stand-up. Uh, so I kind of left it for about probably a year. And then I got into my like third year of university and I got pretty busy and I wasn't able to go out and have as much fun as I, I was in, in previous years. So I got a little bit frustrated and one night I just went out to the uh, open mic and I took my stuff I had written down and tried it. And like you said, I kind of got hooked. Uh, it was a I told the story a little bit, but uh, it was a one-year anniversary of a particular show they were doing, and they were giving this Comedian of the Month award, and uh, they decided to give me the Comedian of the Month award, and I was like, you can't give me that award. I've only been here one time, right? So, <laughs> but uh, it was it was a fun time, and I honestly don't even know if like they've ever given that award out again since they gave me the award, because every time I go there, I see an awful, awfully framed picture of myself that was like um they didn't even tell me they were taking a picture so it's it's awful because somebody took a shot of like half my neck and half my face and it's just like framed <laughs> in the back of this bar and uh yeah that's how i first started so it was it was fun uh like you said but and, and looking back on it now i think i don't know how you how you would feel but for me uh i'm, I'm five years into stand up now and um i actually thought about it probably about two Two years ago or so, I, I realized that, like, that first time that I did stand-up, even though you're, like, nervous about the actual idea of getting on stage and, 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 and doing comedy, I think that was probably the most, like, stress-free I have felt. Because now when I'm doing stand-up, I'm worried about, is the audience going to find this new joke funny? Or am I going to work this tag in properly? Or is this going to, you know... Is this aspect of my set going to go well? And it's so I, I, I think a lot about my set before I actually do it. And the first time you do it, you don't think about any of those elements. You just hope that people will laugh and and like what you're saying. <laughs> so that's yeah. why I kind of felt like the first time I ever did stand-up was probably a little bit more. Uh, the pressure was really off. And now I feel like, not to say that every open mic or anything there's pressure on, but you know, you I I feel like myself. I always want to improve every time I'm on stage. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm more more critical of, of my sets and more uh, just just because I'm trying to improve, right? So, yeah, so it's a different mindset now that I didn't have when I first started. But I, I'm interested to was there stand up comedy on that cruise ship that you were a part of? That was that something you saw and you were like, oh, I should try it? Or is that, like you said, something you always wanted to try just when you got back home? Well, when I was a casino dealer in Edmonton, oh, I want to know the name of your, uh, remind me to come back, and I want to ask the name of the instructor, the professor who who told you you had to do 10 minutes of stand-up comedy, because I'm, okay. I'm definitely fascinated by that. Yeah, 100%. But, um, yeah. Uh, um, so there was, uh, there was a, a comedian named um, Matt Linzer, who I worked with in the casino. And we worked in the, in the casino in West Edmonton Mall. It was called the Palace Casino at the time. Mm -hmm. And so I'd been a casino dealer there for years before he started. And when he started, he was also doing some stand-up comedy. So he, you know, came to the job a little later. And then when he, when he was doing stand-up comedy, it was, it was, he would be playing the amateur night in the mall. And yeah. so all we would have to do if we got off work at seven o'clock, the show started at eight, we would just walk down and watch the amateur night. So for about a year and a half, I went to amateur night almost every single night. Is that the, and, uh, you know the comic strip in Edmonton? Like the, yeah, it's comic strip now, but the back then it was yuck yuck. So, okay. so when they moved the club, 
Yuck Yucks moved into their spot. So yeah, it's, it's where the comic strip is located now, but it was Yuck Yucks at the time. Mm-hmm. And so I would go down, probably the year would have been 98, 99, maybe 99, 2000. And I would go down and watch him do comedy every Tuesday. Yeah. So I had been to the amateur nights over and over and over and over and over again for years. And then when I, when I thought about starting it, when I came back from the cruise ships in 2002, and I finally signed up in 2003, I had been to so many amateur nights that I knew where the club was, I knew when the show was. I didn't know how to sign up, but I went down and basically just asked, hey, how do I sign up for the amateur night? And they said, okay, you're on the list. And then they called me you know, a few days later, maybe a week later, and told me I had a spot in a month and a half. And so, yeah, so I had been, you know, I watched all, all these comics who at the time, you know, have gone on to some pretty good careers. There's a girl who I've worked with all over Asia, um, Howie Miller was one of the comedians who was an amateur back in 98, 99. He'd only been doing it for two years. Uh, Dana Alexander is her name. So Dana Alexander, who's had a pretty good career in the UK, um, she was an amateur back then, you know, back 20, 20 plus years ago. And so, yeah, I'd watched so much comedy by the time I finally decided to give it a try that, you know, it was, uh, it was on my mind for years and years and years. And I didn't want to look like I was copying my friend Matt when he was doing it. Mm-hmm. So I just, I just was a, was an observer, just a fan. Yeah. And then, yeah, one thing went to another and eventually I started it and it, it worked out better than I could have ever dreamed. Yeah. You know, there was, there's never been a point in my life when I think, yeah, this is normal. You know, mm-hmm. every day I'm like, this is bonkers. This is completely crazy. Yeah. So yeah, to go back and answer your question a little bit there. Uh, so I went to university at, uh, in Lethbridge, Alberta and, uh, and and to kind of put it in perspective too. I had I had professors, you know, there that that would say things like, "Call me doctor," you know what I mean, and and wear like a suit, and you know they want they want they want to be addressed properly. Yeah. This guy, this guy's name is uh, Bob Cousins. He's still he's still a teacher there, and uh, uh, I loved him just because the first time I walked into the class, he was wearing. Uh, like faded blue jeans and a, and a faded like uh, Arrested De- Development like Luth's Banana Company T-shirt. Like it was, it was it was just surprising to see that he was he wasn't really like dressed like everybody else. And then in, in particular, like the way he taught was just like he he was teaching kind of like uh, you know he he was teaching you, but he was also like your friend, right? He wants to and he wants to help you like succeed too, right? So then one of the big things too was like. You know, he would say things like, "If you're if you're uh, struggling to find some inspiration, like go down to the uh, go down to the to the bar tonight or whatever, and and find some inspiration or, or or smoke something, and I'm sure you'll find a an inspiration for an idea to write a script." So, um, so that kind of things, I don't like, I don't know, just the he, he kind of resonated me with me in terms of like just a stress relief from some of the things I was uh, e- experiencing. Cause some of them, some of the teachers were very strict in terms of what they wanted and class structure. And he just kind of, he wanted to help me like succeed in that same way, but he just connected more. So yeah. And so he's always kind of been in a, been a, he was, he's really the, the first inspiration I had for, for stand up. So I'm, I'm pretty grateful to that guy, but uh, I wanted to ask a little bit, um, is you know you've traveled all over the world um you know australia like you mentioned asia um 
the U.S. Uh, is there, w w with having performed in front of so many different people and cultures, I'm, I'm assuming you'd have to be cognizant of cultural like rituals and all that stuff. And is there certain things you have to be aware of in terms of like which jokes will work for for like different people or different countries? Um, do you do you change your act depending on the type of well the type of people and who you're performing in front of? And do you worry if they'll understand certain jokes or material? Yeah. So, you know, as you probably know, comedy is, and this is, uh, you know, I almost dislike this word, comedy is so fluid in that you're able to change it on the fly. You know, it's not, you know, it's not a song where people are going to be singing along to the lyrics. But when I started in comedy, I don't know why I thought this, but when I started in comedy, I deliberately didn't write jokes that were regional. So I didn't write a joke about the north side of Edmonton. I didn't write a joke about Saskatchewan. I didn't write a joke about Red Deer or Pinocchio. You know, I didn't write those jokes because even in my first couple of years of comedy, I thought to myself, I want this act to be able to travel. Mm -hmm. So even, even early on, like I remember two or three years in, I thought to myself, why work on a joke about Lloyd Minster? Because that joke is not going to work in Seattle. That joke's not right. going to work in Las Vegas. That joke's not going to work in Australia. I know when I started out, I didn't ever think I'd go to Australia. So, but I really wanted the act to be able to travel. So I was very deliberate that way in that I wrote jokes that were going to work everywhere. So mm -hmm. that was always on my mind, which is looking back, I'm like, man, that was, I don't know why I was thinking that, but I, but I was, I believe that I was going to go somewhere with mm -hmm. this. And then as far as, um, when you, when I did my first show in Asia ever, so it was 2015, um, would have been April in, uh, Bangkok, Thailand. Mm -hmm. So we played the comedy club Bangkok and the owner of the comedy club, Chris Wagoda, one of the, one of the guys who started the comedy club, he came up to me and he said, just so you know, if you make fun of the royal family, if you make fun of the king or queen or, you know, they're one of their kids, the prince mm -hmm. or princesses, if you make fun of the royal family, they will come, they will arrest you, they will take you away, and there's nothing we can do about it. Wow. The, the, Canadian, the Canadian government won't help you. You get taken away by some guys in black suits, and they keep you as long as they want to keep you. And there's nothing anyone can do. So you can make fun of the royal family in Thailand if you want, but just know that you are at risk for being in jail. They will, they will take you away and put you in jail for making fun of the royal family. Right. And so, you know, the Singapore kind of has the same thing. And of course, there's a lot of Middle Eastern countries. Um, Russell Peters tells one of my favorite stories about the King of Jordan, you know, where he was making fun of the King of Jordan and everybody in the crowd looked over at the King of Jordan and he was laughing. You know, so Russell was well-known mm -hmm. enough that he could obviously do something like that. And he knew the King of Jordan, you know, mm -hmm. the guy had asked him to come perform. So, right. um, and he was probably saying something more silly and fun instead of disparaging. And it's definitely but, different when it, when he's right in front of you, right? So, Yeah, and so, so there's that. And then as far as, you know, having an act that, that is about relationships or talking about, you know, toys in the 80s or talking about something that we all kind of experience, you know, that makes the act a little bit more um, suitable for just picking it up and dropping it into an, an, another country. Mm -hmm. And so you definitely are apprised of the situations in the country. So you, you do know about their politics and their religion and, and you, you know, I don't, I wouldn't ever take on, you know, when you're in, 
we were in Malaysia doing the club during Ramadan, would I make jokes about, you know, the Muslim faith? No, I, I wouldn't. You know, so that's not something that I would probably tackle anyway. You know, somebody like Dave Attell probably would or, yeah. or Doug Stanhope, but, you know, those are Jim Jeffries. Um, so, yeah, so you're a little bit cautious when it comes to, then they warn you most of the times they let you know what's off limits and what you, what you can make fun of. And if you can do it skillfully, I think everything's on the table. Um, and so, yeah, so it was, you know, I talk about, I think everybody in the world wants a relationship that makes them happy and a job they find fulfilling and, you know, a little bit of financial security. So globally, we all want love and financial security and happiness, you know. So mm-hmm. it's easy to talk about those things anywhere because everybody wants the same thing. Right. And so it's um, it was cool that I basically designed an act that could be transported to Vietnam and the clubs in Asia and the comedy shows that they put on in Asia are almost entirely expats. So it's always Americans and British and Australians and Canadians. So there aren't too many countries in Asia that where the, the locals show up, you know, it's built as an English speaking comedy show. So when you do a comedy club in Kuala Lumpur, it's all people who speak English in the audience. So So you don't have to change too much, but there are, subtle differences you know you learn quickly if a joke just falls flat and then you can figure out if it was the timing or if there's some a word or phrase in that joke that doesn't work you know so i do a silly joke about or i used to do a silly joke about icing sugar Mm. so in canada in australia in england icing sugar is icing sugar and it paints a visual picture it Mm. looks like cocaine that's what the joke is about yeah well when you're in the u.s Icing sugar isn't a commonly known name for that product. Right. They, they call it granulated sugar. They call it powdered sugar. They call it baking sugar. Like there's different names in different right. regions in the U.S. Wow. So I found when I was down there and I would tell the joke about icing sugar, the joke wouldn't work. And I would go, oh, okay, well, I'll try, I'll try baking sugar. I'll try granulated sugar. And so I would try and change it. But it just didn't paint the picture as quickly as it did everywhere else. It yeah. just calls it icing sugar. And so you eventually just get rid of that joke. You know, there's there's jokes that work in Canada because there's little phrases and different words. Like they don't use the word redneck. They know what a redneck is in Australia. But the word for it is different. And so when you say the word redneck, they go, oh, yeah, I think that that's the thing with the thing, right? It's not instantaneous. The recall to paint an image in your brain isn't what it is. So they call them bogans. And so if you, you know, you see comedians who use the word redneck, eventually they get told, well, the word is bogan and they they'll change it to bogan. Okay. So but every time you performed, it's been in English, correct? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, there was one show I did in Germany. I worked with a very funny comedian named Manuel Wolf, and the audience didn't speak any English. So we we ended up doing a translation. He translated my act, and it was probably one of the funniest sets I've ever done in my life. Wow. Because we looked like a couple of buffoons who were trying to bumble and stumble our way through this, him trying to translate my jokes. Right. And it was so funny that I think you would have difficulty recreating how how buffoon we looked. We looked like complete idiots. Yeah. And we actually had audience members come up after and say, 
where can we see you guys next? Like they thought it was an that's actual cool. comedy duo, yeah. and it turned out we were we were just morons. So well, that's amazing. Like I mean, that's amazing. Just because from my perspective, you know, like uh, I'm I'm uh, I was I'm from Holland originally, so I was thinking about I, I was uh, actually kind of asked to do some comedy in Dutch which is my like native language, but I don't speak very often. Uh, I'm fairly decent at it because I've kept in contact with my relatives, but uh, it's just like the cultural differences in the language and certain jokes won't work. So like, yep. for example, like, I, I don't know, I watched a Netflix special, which I still enjoyed, but I just enjoyed it because it was weird. I, want, I can't remember the guy's name right off the top of my head, but it, it was one of those like, each comedian has kind of half an hour, and so I watched this guy, he had basically an entire half hour and it was all on like how awful of a sport skiing is and how, how weird it is that people go skiing. And it just, people were dying laughing because in Holland, like they, they still have snow, but on a really bad winter day, it might get to minus 10. Like people don't, some people in Holland might never go skiing in their lives and they just think it's ridiculous. And I'm like, if I did this act in Canada, people might revolt. You know, people love skiing and snowboarding here. So I've kind of been trying to take that challenge of performing in a new language and seeing what it's like. I, it might it might succeed, it might not, but it's a, it's a new challenge for me to build on and, and see what I can do with it. So. Uh, so doing something like that, if you reached out to, you know, the, the Dutch community in in and around, you know, Red Deer, Edmonton, or Calgary, if you reached out and said, this is something I'd be interested in doing, most people are so forgiving because if you open that show by saying, um, this is my first time doing this, yeah. then people go, people root for you. People want it to go well for you. So they, they sit there with great anticipation and excitement because they're seeing something that no one else has ever seen. Yeah. And so you go, Hey, this is my first time. So let's, let's get through this. It's good. You know, it's going to be fun for me and I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. And that really helps set the, the mood in the room where they go, Oh, it's the first time. Let's, let's see where this goes. Yeah. So you'll find that they're more forgiving than somebody who knows you've been doing it for a little while, like an English speaking audience who goes, well, it's, he's a comedian. So he better be funny. Right. You know, there's an expectation and that expectation gets lowered greatly when they know, you know, I, I was on tour with a couple of comedians and I said to them, it was their first time ever performing in Saskatchewan or it was their first time ever performing in Ontario or it was their first time ever performing in the U S we were on the tour for about two weeks. And I said, tell the crowd that. Tell them this is my first ever show in Saskatchewan. Because when you say that, the people in that crowd go, well, wait, let's be good for them. Let's, be, let's make his first experience good. And so they end up being a little bit more forgiving because they want to be good for you. you know, and we, you know, we all obviously always want to be good for them, unless you're Neil Hamburger. Right. Um, but you mentioned it a little bit before. Um, in particular, you mentioned you know, writing a lot, uh, when you first started, is there a particular process you have when you're writing new material? Like, do you write, do you write, uh, jokes out on paper or do you record them? Do you, what is the process like for you when you're coming up with, with new jokes? So I always want, and because it's been my job now for you know, almost 12 years, I think, um, I want the entire process to be fun. So I want the writing process to be fun. I want the booking process to be fun. I want the performing to be fun. I really want to keep the joy in what I do. Mm -hmm. I want it to be fun each day. And it has been, and I still love it so much. And perhaps it's because I've tried to keep, deliberately tried to keep that joy in. So I never force the writing process. I don't sit down and 
Right, I gotta make something funny. Let's see if I can make something funny. I go about my day, um, and when something strikes me as funny, no matter how silly or how mundane or how how unfunny. So when something strikes me as funny, I'll write it in the notes on my iPhone. So not in the joke in its entirety, but the main ideas. And then what I'll do is take it to an open mic. So I'll take it. You know, I like the idea of taking five minutes of new material to an open mic. Because it's going to be fresh for me. Now I'm going to be excited to tell it. Yeah. And that you know, makes the creative process. So let's see if I can find one. You know, and this joke has never been told before. And so this is, you know, something that I would have written on, on my way back from you know, Australia or, um, oh yeah, that's silly. Um, that's, uh, I'm trying to find one quickly here. So I, I this idea of, Corporate greed. I want to see if I can make corporate greed funny because it's something that I hate more than anything in the world. And so I, I just jotted down this idea. Oh, this one's actually funnier. Um, none of these have been told on stage, so this is just the, the process that people are listening to this and they go, well, these aren't funny. My dad has never been told before. Yeah. <laughs> so um, the idea that this first, this first one I'll tell is the idea that my mom is really nice. My mom is the nicest person. And my mom is so nice that if she were allergic to peanuts and they messed up her food order at a restaurant, she would still just eat it. So like, oh. Mom, that's pad, that's pad thai. There's peanuts in that. And she, my mom, the idea, this idea in my head of her being so nice, and she's like, it's fine. It's okay. I'll, I'll, I'll just eat it. Don't, I don't want to complain. Besides, my EpiPen is about to expire. Yeah. Like, the idea of, no, no, it's okay. My EpiPen's going to expire. I have to get a new one anyway. Yeah. So I'll just eat this and then use my EpiPen. Yeah. <laughs> and, then, and so that struck me as very funny, the idea of somebody who is so nice that they would rather use their EpiPen than, than complain. And, then, and the joke about corporate greed that I jotted down the idea was corporations are going to eventually try and figure out how to, to swindle everybody out of their, uh, out of their pensions because mm-hmm. paying pensions is going to cost them money. And I like the word swindle. So I thought of the word swindle, and I'm like, let's work swindle in here. And I go, we're basically just lab rats for corporations to figure out how they can swindle us out of more money. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when you take that idea up, and when you put yourself on the spot, as you've probably done when you've got a new idea, when you put yourself on the spot, creatively, it starts to just fall out of your mouth. Mm-hmm. So the words will just slowly fall out, and eventually, hopefully, a nugget of gold will fall out in that. So you'll go, oh, that's a, that's a funny word, that's a funny turn of phrase, that's a funny thought to add to that particular joker idea. In the intro, you mentioned uh, working with one of the legends in comedy in particular. I wanted to ask about uh, Joan Rivers, just because I was watching a, a documentary that about her life, basically, uh yesterday started watching it and and you mentioned in the in the um email when we were talking before this you you did uh like three canadian tours with her is that correct yeah yeah she was uh she became a friend and so the documentary you're talking about if people haven't seen this documentary it's it's such a great watch even yeah. if you weren't a fan of joan rivers even if you weren't a fan of comedy this this is one of the best comedy documentaries and best biopics ever created. Like this this documentary really shows you who Joan was, and it walks you through a lot of the stuff that maybe people are too young to realize that she was the fill in host for Johnny Carson, and that you know she had her own show for a little while on Fox, and and then who she became after her husband you know committed suicide, and so 
Um, this was one of the true legends in comedy. This was Joan Rivers was I'm you know it's you couldn't say enough about the differences she made in comedy. She was really one of the pioneers who just kicked the door open for other female comedians. And she didn't really like that. You know, she didn't want to be known as a legend or an icon. Mm-hmm. She just wanted to be known as a comedian. Right. And, you know, she, she didn't want credit for breaking down barriers because that's not why she did it. She did it because she wanted to be a comedian. Mm-hmm. And, and so it was always fun when somebody would interview her and they'd be like, so what's it like opening the door for so many comedians? Like, blah, blah. Like, that's not why I did it. You know, it, it was that a, did that happen by default? You know, generically, she opened doors for other people. Sure, but that's mm. not why she did it. Yeah. You know, she just wanted to do comedy. And I think my favorite part about her, and, I, and each time I, you know, when I do an interview, I talk, end up talking about her because I'm so fond of how she treated people. Right. She would make sure you were on the promo. So when you did promo, like mm. when there was a billboard, if there was a billboard that said Joan Rivers was coming, or a bus ad, or an ad in the newspaper. It wasn't just Joan Rivers appearing. Right. Her opening act that night would be on the promo, wow. which was so unusual. You know, you get somebody big and, you know, Bob Saget is every bit as nice as Joan Rivers is. But when his billboard is up, your name's not on that. And mm. nor should it be. You're not going to sell any extra tickets. No. It really is just a hat tip for you. Yeah. You know, it really is just a show of respect for the other act on the show where she's like, oh, yeah, and... And so she made sure you were on the promo. Right. And that kind of grace, that kind of that that kind of generosity she showed in everything she did. Mm-hmm. And she might have looked like she was, you know, this this vicious, you know, she pulled no punches and nothing was off limits. She was just trying to be funny all the time. Right. But she really was one of the kindest, most generous people I've ever met. Yeah. And so, you know, I I I definitely hesitate in sending that one to you. Hey, here's a little bit about me. But the fact of the matter is, if everybody treated each other the way that she treated people, the world would be such an amazing place. She would just give the shirt off her back to anyone. And she did your intro, which is one of my favorite things. You know, if I ever became, you know, Kevin Hart or Russell Peters or somebody massive, I would make sure to do the intro of my comedian, the opening acts, because Mm -hmm. it legitimizes you to her audience. When she comes on the microphone and goes, yeah. you know, hey, this is this is you know a funny opening act, and then she, you know, everyone goes, oh, okay, well, Joan's right. introducing him, he must be funny. Right. So you have, you know, you're given an opportunity to do well before you even started because she, Joan, has said that she likes you, right. and so everyone's like, oh, well, this guy's a friend of Joan, but he must be good. Absolutely. And so, you know, yeah, such a such a great and funny. I mean, if comedians realized that every tour I did with her, she was doing over 20 minutes of new material every single tour. Oh, wow. And this was somebody who, when she passed away, was 81 years old. Yeah. So at 81 years old, she was churning out 30 minutes a year easily. Yeah. yeah. And just just a, an absolute force. She was, she, she, people should go watch the documentary. It's called A Piece of Work yeah, about Joan Rivers. Watch it. Trust me. You will not regret it. And if you do regret it, message me at Extra Lars. <laughs> And I'll give you your money back. Yeah, exactly. No, it's definitely yeah, and that, especially one of the reasons I've I've started to watch it is because, like you said, I ha- I have I wasn't around during that time and just kind of caught like the, I guess you would call it kind of the tail end, right? I 
I really li- I watched the uh, the uh, Celebrity Apprentice a lot at that time. Uh, but and then I've been listening to her uh, the the last album she did before. Like you said, like when she recorded that album, I believe she was like seventy eight or so. So that's yeah. it was a uh, yeah amazing to hear and see like the the dedication and and if she was still here, I'm sure you know she she would still keep going. Like she was. I'm pretty sure still going to like the day she passed. So yeah, the last you know the day before she she went in for throat. She she had um, she had a raspy voice and she was going in to get a little bit of work on that. Not in a hospital, but in just a little like a clinic. And the night before she had gone and done an hour of comedy, and then the day before she had recorded an episode of Fashion Police. And so she was like you said, she was still full on, you know, going 15 hours a day, 16 hours a day, mm-hmm. the day before she, she went in and had this thing happen. So yeah, she was absolutely, she'd still be going. She was, yeah. she was great, man. She was really cool. People, I, I wish everybody would have had a chance to meet her because then everybody would go, oh man, she was so nice. And oh, she was so funny. And oh, she was so great. You know, because she was, she really was. Yeah. And you mentioned, um, uh, you know, like you've been doing this for 17 years, a long time, and you've had the chance to perform with a lot of cool people. Um, and, and maybe maybe part of this is already in your answer. That, but uh, what is the thing that you're most proud of in your career up to this point? That's a cool question. I don't think anybody's ever asked me that question. Um, the thing I wanted most, really the thing I wanted more than anything when I started out, was just for laughs. You know, so that was the that was the feather in the cap. That was the brass ring. That was, you know, the Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. But you know, when I started comedy, Johnny Carson was long gone. So mm-hmm. the Tonight Show would be the next. That's that's the thing that you want more than anything. But right. um, I did just for last in 2010, and at that point, I had been doing comedy for you know some seven years, and that wasn't the thing anymore. I was still so proud to do it. I was still I consider myself incredibly lucky but the thing that i'm most proud of are the five times i've entertained the military you know i've i've done it overseas four times and once at you know in none of it at cfs alert but there's there's this idea that i've always i believe this so so i think everybody owes the military a debt of gratitude i'm glad remembrance day exists you know veterans day in the u.s and, and anzac day in australia so we honor our veterans with these days to say thank you for your sacrifice. These people who are willing to sacrifice their lives in the name of freedom. And so, and, and this might sound cheesy, by the way, I'm well aware of that, and I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not looking for, um, I'm not pandering. This is this is how I feel. So everybody owes our military a debt of gratitude in some way or another. Some had family members they lost. Some, you know, some currently have people serving overseas. The military is always there when we need them, and so we owe them a debt of gratitude. I think comedians owe them a little more than everybody else. Mm-hmm. So even though even though everybody owes them, a comedian's job would not exist if it weren't for freedom of speech. And yeah. so we can't do this job, or it's incredibly difficult, if we can't speak freely. And there was somebody who at one time or another laid down their life so that I could have freedom of speech. So when I do a show for the military, so I've done Kuwait, Iraq, Dubai, Abu Dhabi, Kyrgyzstan, Turkey, and the North Pole, 
CFS alert, basically. Yeah. And so all of those places that this job has taken me to, when I stand in front of the military, it means a little more to me than the rest of my shows. I love this job. I can't believe that this is a this is a job that somebody could do. But in those moments, it really is something where I'm like, the I owe this group of people. I owe this the history of this. I owe it a little more than most people do. Right. So those those shows are the ones that are closest to my heart. The ones that you know, like we we've got shows in every possible place in the world. You know, every you know, you name it, we've done an open mic there. And mm-hmm. so those shows are cool too. But the ones for the military, I think, I would say, were the ones where I go. Yeah. Is there anything uh, that you know now from your travel experience and, and all the experiences you've had that you wish you knew when you first started? Not in terms of like changing anything, but any any advice you wish you knew back then? Uh, you know, I think the first thing that anybody aspiring to be a comedian, the first thing they need to learn is how to edit. You know, so if you learn the importance of how to, how to edit jokes that don't work, and I think I learned it relatively quickly, but, you know, the idea that, that this, this entire career is just if you edit out the stuff that doesn't work consistently, mm-hmm. then you'll, you know, your trajectory will be much steeper than everybody else's because you're just telling the funny stuff. Um, sometimes when I'm touring to a, a community where the, the, the comedy scene is a little smaller, you know, in Vietnam or if I'm going to Darwin, Australia, I'll put on a free workshop. You know, I'll sit down with them for three hours and, and I, I don't ever want to make any money off them. I just want to take that opportunity to teach them the things that I've learned. And I don't talk about their material. I don't, I don't want to shape a comedian. I don't want to make a bunch of comedians into who I am. I want to teach them the business side of it. And the first thing I teach them is edit, edit, edit. And there was a line that I read. I think I read it in a Maxim magazine. If anybody's listening to this, you know who said this. I would love to be able to attribute this to an author. But I think it's the most, um, this quote, will really help your career more than anything else. And it was, say what you think is funny, keep what the audience finds funny. Mm-hmm. And that really is where it boiled down. I mean, it's distilled to its finest point. If you speak things that make you laugh, you talk about the things that make you laugh, hey, this strikes me as funny. And you take that to an audience. And then you only keep what the audiences find funny. You know you test out with different audiences. Mm-hmm. Eventually what you have is an act, that you can sell, you can deliver with conviction, an act that you can, you can, you believe in it. Right. And then it's also an act that the audience finds funny. So just say what you think is funny, keep what the audience finds funny. That's the greatest piece of advice I ever read. And uh, I mean, maybe you mentioned it off of the start a little bit there, but you mentioned you, you were working on or recording a new album um, and you were you're probably eventually going to continue to do that uh, tour that you had planned in Australia. But are there certain future goals you're working on right now or you're looking at uh, working towards in the future? Yeah. I want to perform in Africa, on the African continent, and I want to perform in Antarctica. So I've done, you know, I've done Asia, I've done Europe, I've done Australia, I've done North America, I've done South America. And so... I want to perform in every continent in the world. I want to be able to say that I performed on every continent. And 
getting to Antarctica is probably the bucket list item that I think is yeah. the one that I'm like, man, I want to perform down there. And and it's Antarctica is much different than than the North Pole, and that there's a lot of different research stations, and it's a lot harder to get in and out of. Right. And so, so Africa and Antarctica are, are two two things that, and I don't talk about those too often, um, but those are definitely bucket list items. And then, um, you know, I, I just relapsed gala you know the people when people watch just for last on television and they see the comedian come out in the big theater the, the theater is called the saint denis theater mm-hmm. um doing i haven't done a just for Laps gala yet so that's certainly on the on the list of feathers i would like in my cap um mm-hmm. but there hasn't i mean it is ridiculous to think that comedy and being a stand-up comedian could be an occupation that, that they could yeah. say when people ask me what i do what do you do for a living i'm like this is gonna like I think in my head before I answer. This is gonna sound like such bullshit. <laughs> right. <laughs> like you know, somebody's like, "What do you do?" And I'm like, "I'm a comedian." And they're like, "No, ha ha ha! What do you do?" And I'm like, "No, I'm an actual comedian." Yeah, like, I, I pay the bills. <laughs> but I, this. I, it's, it's, I, it's hard to say it with a straight face. But yeah, I mean, yeah. But it's a it's a, it's a wonderful feeling. It's a great feeling. It's something to be proud of for sure. And I think it's it's a it's a goal that all of us uh, strive for. So no matter how like how far you go in the rest of your career. I mean, obviously you've accomplished a lot and you will have to be proud of. So congratulations on what you've achieved so far. Um, is there um, any, any social media you'd like to, to mention or places where people can find you or, or more of your material? I know you've got an hour long special that's been on uh, the comedy network and CBC that people can check out, but. Um, uh, so I, I had my, you know, my first album. So I have a, special on the comedy network that airs occasionally but um if people are on instagram or twitter um so it's at extra like the word extra extra and then lars and i follow everybody back um so extra lars so my my second album will be coming out hopefully in the next month and if people are listening to this later it's uh april 1st so it's not april fool's joke but it's april 1st and so it should be out by the end of april i hope and I, I don't charge people for this album. It'll be on Sirius XM and everything, but I just mm-hmm. drop box it to people for free. I don't, I, I can't, I can't. <laughs> I feel like hawking merch. I feel like I'm at a, a you know, at a farmer's market. Yeah. Um, so I just give, a, you know, people want my first album for free. Just message me on Instagram or Twitter. And um, the other album I'll also make available for free. People can just have it. Um, okay. And so it's good. I'm proud of it. You know, pr- pr- proud of the, proud of the, the album that we just recorded, it turned out, I think, well, we'll see, I guess, but I believe it turned out pretty well. And, um, yeah, people want that content. And, and we did also film the special, um, and I'll put that up on YouTube. I have old clips on YouTube. There's nothing new up there. Mm-hmm. So I'll get that new stuff up on, on YouTube shortly. Um, so people can hopefully by the end of April, that'll also be available. But if you go look now, it's just old stuff. And, um, it's such a, <laughs> the self-promotion part of this job is probably my least favorite yeah. part, you know, where you're like, Hey, follow me. Yeah. Especially you know, the, uh, the social media fan. aspect is really, uh, I, I don't know. It's not necessarily difficult, but it's, uh, it's a little bit tedious, I guess, in the sense of like, you know, um, I, I want to focus on my material and being funny and, and, and writing better material, not so much on, on worrying about how many likes I have on my page or, or you know, how many people are watching a certain video, but that's that's kind of important sometimes too, right? So um, I don't know, like like I said, I obviously want to focus on making the, the act as good as I can, but that social media aspect can be a bit of a challenge for me. Uh, yeah, it is. 
feel like an egomaniac, but when, when people go to book us, they do look at YouTube views. They do look at how many followers you have on Instagram. So, you know, the, the people, the fans of yours, if they're listening at home, follow, follow Nick because yeah. it really does make a difference over the long run. And it's nice to have fans. So, um, yeah. Well, I really appreciate you joining me uh, and taking the time out of your day to talk to uh, me a little bit and get to know you some more. Uh, I know we've shared the stage and crossed paths a couple times, but hopefully we can do that uh, again in the future. Yeah, yeah. thanks for having me, and, and I do look forward to that. I am incredibly excited the next time we get to work together.